Hello and welcome to Conversations on Sex, Addiction, and Relationships. So glad that you're joining us today. Uh, I'm Tim Stein here with my friends Wendy Conquest, Dan Drake, and Jeannie Vittoni. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a betrayal trauma and the impact betrayal trauma has on partners, specifically of sex addicts, but we're actually going to expand that topic and uh, how betrayal trauma impacts uh, uh, people in all kinds of different areas of life. But what's been going on with you guys lately? So one of the things that I've noticed is everyone's going on vacation. So it's, um, this is, we're recording this in uh, June, 2021. And I don't, have you guys planned vacations and are you uh, seeing that a lot of people are gone? Uh, like my plumber was gone and some colleagues that I was trying to um, uh, do collateral with, they're all gone. Is it, it's almost like a, a, a getting out of jail card. Is this, is this what you're experiencing? Making, making and up I know, of course, time. I'm coming to see you. I'm leaving. I'm going to go to California and I'm going to be seeing Tim and Jeannie next Friday. Boop, boop. I was actually you. thinking when you were saying this, I was like, I'd like to be gone. <laughs> I'm not going gone, but I'd Why like not? to be gone. <laughs> no, I have no, at this point, we have fall plans, but not summer plans. But I think the idea of being gone in the summertime is lovely. So maybe I'm going to have plans soon. Gotcha. You know, I just flew for the first time last weekend in, in like a year and a half. And it was a, oh. it was like kind of a bizarre experience. Like, you know, being in an airport, the airports are packed now too. So I'm also not used to being packed with all these people around me. And, you know, I'm sitting in a mask in airport and I almost like, I know how, I've done this travel a million times, but something about that, I feel like it was, I was like, oh yeah, I, I, this is what we do now. And we wait in this line and we sit here. And it just was like surreal. I know that we've got some, uh, some plans coming up to visit family and a few other things at the end of summer. But what I'm noticing is that, you know, here in California, we're just starting to loosen things up a little bit and it's starting to feel a little normal. And so uh, I was in the store the other day and I'm walking around and, and like, after I'd been in there for like five minutes, I realized I didn't bring my mask with me and I left it in the car and I very sheepishly walked out because it's like, I want everything to be normal, but it's not quite normal yet. Um, and so I, I'm really curious to see what happens this summer. My wife keeps pointing out that the 19, the, the, the roaring 20s happened after the big Spanish flu in the 1918 or something. And so we're coming out of this very similar sort of lockdown. And I'm very curious about what the, what, what the next couple years or next five years are going to be like as we come out of this and start to reintegrate. So this conversation that we're having reminds me of a lot of infidelity happens when people are traveling. So it seems to happen if someone is away and the sexual um, infidelity happens or romantic infidelity happens when they're away from home or when someone leaves and the person that's back at home is alone. Mm -hmm. And so I really am interested in this topic about betrayal trauma. Mm -hmm. And so what is it? What's the description? Do we have, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking like, is there a universal definition at this point of what betrayal trauma is? Well, I, I think, think it's an evolution. 
didn't absolutely in evolution currently. Did it start with uh, Barbara Steffens and Marsha Means book? Is that where, was that the benchmark for what betrayal trauma is? Their identification was that partners of sex addicts were experiencing symptoms that matched uh, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder symptomology. So when we talk about what is betrayal trauma, wouldn't it be PTSD symptomology that evolves out of betrayal of a very personal relationship? Yeah, I would say that's where the term started with, with Barb and Marsha's research and then book. Um, and I think it, it, as time has gone, it's been expanded to this. But yeah, back in the origins, it was looking at the PTSD symptomology that's simpler similar to a partner's experience. And they're releasing their book, Your Sexually Addicted Spouse, now. It was in publication and then it's being re-released now. Is that right? Yeah, it has yeah. another edition. Great. Another Great. edition, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're saying that when um, someone is in a primary committed relationship and um, they romantically or sexually act out with somebody else, act out, let, let me term that differently. When they sexually or, act, uh, or, or romantically have, uh, have that behavior happening with somebody outside that committed relationship, and then that person finds out they experience a range of different symptoms uh, that, uh, that, that, uh, that mimic a post-traumatic stress disorder. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, let me flip it though. Yep. If someone is in a relationship and their partner acts out uh, romantically, sexually with someone else, the person in the relationship, if they experience uh, distress, similar to PTSD, they, 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 uh, you know, they have triggers that bring up the, the experience. They feel like it's happening again. They're compulsively trying to protect themselves from uh, being hurt in that same way again. Uh, they're having reoccurring uh, thoughts or, or nightmares or experiences. I don't remember all the other uh, But if they're having those experiences, we would say that they are experiencing betrayal trauma because they're having PTSD type trauma experiences that were caused by the betrayal of their partner to them in the relationship. I don't know that I clarified that at all, but it sounded good in my head initially. (laughs) You took what you said and you expanded it and you expanded it certainly well. I think the the part is, you know, betrayal trauma is a word that's being used in many situations. And for us, it's used in partners of sex addicts, but it's also being applied into infidelity where someone's had an affair, romantic, physical, you know, but not necessarily sex addiction or compulsive sexual behavior. So the term itself, I think, is going through an evolution. Why do you think it happens? What happens? Which part? Why do you think that there are PTSD symptoms? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm curious what everyone has to say on this one. I would say... I know, take Jeannie, take a breath. (laughs) (laughs) When one person, let's call the betrayed partner, let's just use that term, get away from the he's and she's and such. When a betrayed partner 
has an idea and an, uh, of how their life is going. It's sort of the, the pattern they make up in their head, the narrative they're telling themselves about their expectations and future planning, as well as their history with this person. When they learn that their understanding of their life and their relationships is not accurate, it's not true. I think we had a great time in Hawaii. Well, turns out while we're having a great time in Hawaii, he was texting someone else, he was sexting someone else, he was meeting up with someone else, X, Y, or Z. So it's that, what is my reality? I think the change and the violation of one's knowing of their reality causes that, is one piece that causes that traumatic reaction. Okay, okay. Others, because um, like, let's yeah. expand this. Well, we've talked in another episode about on the, the addict side about how, well, typically, at least how we're talking with sex addiction, um, the, the sex addict will tend to present themselves a certain way to the world, you know, have have this exterior that they show that they want everyone to see them a certain way. Partners too, so they they right they share some of themselves that they want to be seen as. But I, to me, I think what the trauma is 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 it's who are you? Because now I just peered behind the curtain. The person I thought I'm in this long term committed relationship with is no longer that that person that I'm seeing this there's so much else that that I this other part of you that I didn't even know existed who and then also who who am I with you what's our relationship what's real what wasn't like that Hawaii trip you know was our wedding a lie was you know all these photos is this ring that I wear if I'm married what does that mean you know what were the the kind of covenant agreement that we made you didn't abide by that you know i think there's just all kinds of this huge existential mm-hmm. crisis that happens at the point of and it's typically at the point of discovery because typically and, and at least in my experience i'm sure i don't know for for you all but the clients that i see typically it's the uh the, the betrayed partner discovers the truth they didn't they weren't told about it so this is a huge stumbling on something that was hugely devastating and that's that's i would say well let let, let me tim what what do you think i am thinking i've got a bunch of different thoughts that are going through my head the first thought that comes to mind is i think it has to do with the nature of the relationship like i i remember in college um i had a pretty close relationship with one of my professors and then uh there was an incident that happened where that that collegial relationship got severed. And I remember being, it being very, very painful and throwing me off and sort of like sitting in my head for a while. But I was able to move past that relatively easily. So I, I think that was a, a, an experience of trauma to some extent, but it was more situational trauma that I was able to move on from. If I had a, if in a committed relationship, where I've gotten more attached to this relationship than a, than a collegial one, more attached to it, and not just more attached by time, but more attached by my sense of self has been connected and intertwined and in this relationship and in our interactions and what it means. And this is the foundation that I'm, that I'm living with, that when that betrayal is uh, either discovered or uh, shared with me, suddenly the foundation of, of that whole relationship that I'm very intertwined with just gets pulled out from under me. And so I, I, I think that it's that, that significant rupture 
of a relationship that I had in many ways identified with. And so it's sort of like my sense of identity is gone. Uh, I think about you, Jeannie, when we talk, when we do the trainings on sex addiction, betrayal trauma, and, and we talk about the different types of trauma and with sex addiction, there might be overt trauma, like significant sexual abuse that the person experienced or relational trauma that the person grew up with that is really influencing the and driving their addiction. And when you talk about partners, one of the things you make a point of saying is that there may be relational trauma in their history, but when they experience betrayal trauma, it feels like life and death. And, I, and I, 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 I'm making up that it feels like life and death because it's connected to this relationship that I have attached myself to in a very significant way. And now I don't know how to make sense of my life if this piece that was so significant to it, suddenly I'm finding out it never existed the way I thought it had. Well, and if I can add in here, so I really like to frame things as we all have a hunter-gatherer brain. Mm -hmm. So our brains are wired a certain way. And so if we think of a hunter-gatherer society, what's the most important thing to that hunter-gatherer society? It is actually the tribe. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be absolute honesty and transparency with the different group members in order to survive. And so um, the way I like to frame this for clients is that if you have your tribe and then all of a sudden somebody is going away and bringing in somebody else that you don't know, you have no idea who this person is, you have no idea what tribe they're from, um, but they're, they're coming in. Because what I find with partners is the wounding is an invasive wound. Um, it, it, there's some abandonment characteristics, but it's mainly this thing is coming in and I have to push everything and everyone away. And so it's this idea of um, the, the person that I, well, I thought was part of my tribe that I could lean on, rely on, is, is not who I thought they were. That's sort of mirroring everything that you're saying. But also this piece of this thing has come into my life that is extremely threatening. I'm, I'm also going to say extremely threatening. And I didn't want it. It's being put upon me. And I had no preparation it was coming. So it really is the pedestrian in the crosswalk, but there's no crosswalk and the car comes through and hits. There's no warning. There's no planning. I didn't want it to happen. And so I think that adds to the traumatic piece is that there is no preparation for this. It's there's typically a- finding it. And, but even if they are told, I didn't know that was, kind, that was coming. So it's this total unexpected asteroid coming down and dropping on our house and exploding us and there was no way to prepare for this thing that adds to the traumatic features it does uh tim are you open to sharing when we did our retreat the the game yeah because Mm. there's a there's a game so tim and i did a retreat a few years ago and there's this is a simple example that uh is is a kind of meaningless example but it was it, it highlighted exactly the point of this so you want to share it sure so we we decided we were doing a retreat with a bunch of um addicts who had been in recovery for a while typically and it was really focused on developing partner sensitivity and helping them to understand partners experiences so as a part of the retreat we had them play a game of cornhole and if you have never played cornhole it's set two boards up about you know 10 to 12 feet apart and and on the board there's like a hole and you toss bean bags at the board and you know, traditionally, 
you get a point for every beanbag that goes through the hole. We decided to turn it, turn the game on its head. And so what we we told, we broke the guys up into groups and I gave them score sheets and I instructed them to just record where the beanbags landed. And then we would add up the scores later. So, and, and, and we had all kinds of guys. We had, you know, high powered business people. We had engineers, we had, you know, renowned surgeons. We had all kinds of people that were very high powered, high functioning people at this retreat. So they play this game of cornhole. They record where their beanbags land. And then I decided to be a bit of a jerk. And I played games with the scoring. And so instead of giving them a score for like three points for getting in the hole, one point for being on the board and zero for being off, I said, okay, so now you're getting three points for every beanbag that didn't go anywhere on the board. You get one point for every beanbag that ends up on the board and you get minus three points for every beanbag that actually went in the hole. And, 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 and so these guys who are like very intense and, and they thought they knew the rules of the game. And so they get done with the game and then I give them the scoring solution. And the, the, the amazing thing was, is that th- these men collapsed. We had engineers they angry. Who, they got, yeah. yeah that walked around and had little tantrums. Some guys just put the stuff away and wouldn't play anymore. Engineers who couldn't add up their scores, their brain just went haywire. And what we, the point we were making was your partners went into the relationship thinking that they knew what the rules of your relationship were and what the agreements were. And then when they found out about your addiction, what they found out is that the rules and the agreements in the relationship were radically different from what they thought they were walking in the front door. And if this is the reaction that you are having to a game of cornhole, imagine the the impact that this is having on them when they find out that it's not just a game of cornhole, but it's their entire relationship. It was was profound. I, I, I still work with some of those guys. And when that retreat comes up, this is one of the experiences that they frequently bring up and say, yeah, I'm at... That, that stupid game of cornhole you made us play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, a great it, empathy exercise. Well, because the, the, the thing that's so profound is it, it, there's no stakes to this at all. There, it, whether you win or lose, there's no money on it. It didn't really matter who won. But the fact that these guys were so, they had all different kinds of reactions and, and to this, this kind of meaningless game. And then they were actually able to see, okay, yeah, my, my partner's experience is they're having a lot of symptoms, but yet it makes sense why they would be having such profound symptoms because I changed the rules without telling them and they were operating on a whole different set of parameters in this relationship. That's one of the things that I will often tell the addicts on my side when when they're in group or I'm working with them individually, because they'll come in and they'll say, my wife totally overreacted or the partner reacted in this way. And, And I will find myself saying, you know, I'm never gonna tell you that that your partner is always going to be kind, empathetic, appropriate, you know, any of that stuff. The the more important question is, can you understand why their reaction makes sense in the situation given where they're coming from? Mm -hmm. Because their behaviors most of the time are about safety seeking, trying to keep themselves safe and protecting themselves from being hurt again. And when addicts understand that aspect of betrayal trauma and how it shows up in the partner's reactions and there's a huge shift in their ability to be sensitive to the partner 
and those reactions. And, and that's often very healing to the relationship. So, so what we're talking about is cheating. What we're talking about is cheating, right? Yeah. No. And so a, a big question that, that, that we hear that, that in social media and, and general, um, it's out there now, is if my partner cheats, what do I do? Well, I, I would, okay, wait a second, because I'm not going to actually agree that we're talking about cheating. Because I guess the thing would be how I do, lots of people have different definitions of cheating. So sometimes cheating is touch contact. Sometimes it's emotional affair. Sometimes it's pornography. Sometimes it's masturbation. So when we say cheating, let's just have an inclusive definition and realize that everyone needs to define that for themselves. Yes, yeah. but however, but but the trauma when 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 people are in a relationship, right, and right. and something there's some sort of lying and some yes. sort of you know sexual behavior that happens outside that relationship, okay, and the other person is having a strong reaction to it. Yes, what do they do? What okay. can they do? Because so a lot also- of times, because because the generally because what I hear right and on these different platforms is oh just leave. You know, that person's a jerk there, they, you know, you deserve better. If this happens, you know, once a cheater, always a cheater, right? We hear that, you know, once so a cheater, to, always a cheater, just leave. I want to get back to that. But before we go there and launch, I want to go back and say, cheating can be more than physical. I think about Rob Weiss. Because, hold on, because sometimes it's, it's, um, and sometimes it's not meant to be, but then emotional blurring of boundaries can occur. And then is that cheating or not? And that's individual, but I don't want to say that cheating is only physical behavior because that, that could minimize someone else's experience of, wait a second, you've made your, my best friend, your best friend. Now you're calling her in the middle of the night. And so we want to be really careful with how we define that because well, lots of people think, define it. I think Barb but, Steffen's research actually lines up with that. You know, she, she talked uh, betrayed spouses, partners, whether it was pornography or touch contact, they, they, the trauma could still be the same. And that's what we see is that folks who have, who, who see uh, pornography and masturbation, whether that's together or not, as a betrayal also. And so I want to make sure we're not minimizing that portion of people out there, because absolutely that could be a betrayal. You, me, and porn are in the bed together. Rob, that's Rob not Weiss, always desired. Rob Weiss has a, a definition that he uses for infidelity. Uh-huh. Which is something along the lines of keeping significant sexual or relational secrets from your partner. Yeah. And, you know, some couples that might be, have more of an open relationship, you know, they have agreements around that and that might be okay. But if you're keeping other secrets about that, that's problematic. If you have, you know, a, a close emotional relationship with a coworker, um, that might be okay, but Am I not letting my partner know that this is someone I'm close to and, and there's almost an emotional connection that, that's going to feel betraying to my partner? Am I looking at porn and I'm keeping it a secret from my partner or am I, does my partner know I look at porn sometimes, but I'm not tell, I'm keeping a secret how often I'm looking or the type of porn I'm looking at? So, I would say that secret keeping for sure. And I also, when I'm talking to people about this, it's mutual consent. Yeah. Do you all mutually agree that this is how you've organized your relationship? Do you have mutual agreement of what's happening? Because if some folks have an open relationship, 
that's fine for them. But is it mutually agreed that you have this open relationship? If you're using pornography, is it mutually agreed? And so certainly the way I'm describing it dovetails to what you're saying, Tim, about this, is it secret keeping? And so getting back to what you were saying, Wendy, there's, there, I think there's two pieces here. One is, what does the partner do? Because they're going to be in this space typically of, I need to keep myself safe. And so just leave is one way to keep them safe. I think the other piece has to do with, I don't know if this is new to our society or if it's been there for a long time, but God, I'm seeing it everywhere, which is this lack of empathy understanding and 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 the lack of it, uh, allowing other people to um, learn and grow and change from their mistakes, which is he cheated. He's never going to change. Just leave him. He's a jerk. It doesn't matter any of the good qualities he's got. He did this one thing. That's it. That's what he's going to be defined by forever. You should just leave him. You know, the people out there talking to the partner. And if you don't, somehow there's something wrong with you because you're allowing yourself to stay there. So there's the, the societal message that can be so painful and you combine that with the partners need to be safe and protect themselves. And then it, it can be very confusing. What do you do then? Mm -hmm. I, I think hearing that message of you should stop right there. Anything that follows after those words, you should. I want everyone to take a moment and, and really slow down and say, should I? because someone else is telling me how to do it. Everyone gets to decide for individually. And, and often we, we hear, and I'm sure you guys hear this too, especially from betrayed partners. I always thought I would leave. I, I said to my partner, if I ever am cheated on, I'm out. And then here they find themselves in the situation and it's more complex than that for a lot of people. Now, some people say I'm out. He, there's a cheating situation going on, I'm gone. And that's, that's great, that's, that's how they wanna do it. But for some other folks and a lot of other folks, it's not as simple or clear. That's nothing simple, but clear. Dan? Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, for anyone listening, there can be a whole range of, of emotions and experiences and reactions. And, you know, what you may feel in one moment may, may change to the next. You may have a good moment followed by this fear that that when's the other shoe going to drop and then you get triggered and scared. So there's so much, especially early on, lack of safety and, and potential volatility at first. So I just want to normalize some of that because it's, it's, it's perfectly normal, perfectly understandable, especially if, if the way I think about it, if in a committed relationship, which is typically what we're, we're dealing with, people are in committed relationships. Um, my, my partner, when I get into that relationship should be my source of comfort and support, care, love, and yet I just found out that this person is also my source of pain, threat, danger, trauma. So I have a person who's my source of support and comfort is now my source of danger. That's really crazy making. And, and so try and hold these at the same time. So I just want to normalize some of the complexity of feelings and how that can change over, you know, uh, from one moment to the next. Um, yeah. And I, that's why safety is so critical, especially early on. I, I also just want to say that anybody that's listening, um, if you have experienced this and are going through it, you're going to feel crazy. Um, you're going to do things that you normally would never do. Uh, the, the things that you would seek out to relax or to rest a lot of times won't work. 
Um, so one of the one of the things that seems to work the best when I've worked with partners is uh, actually running. Um, so really engaging the body so that it's it's the feeling of I'm running, running, running to get away from something. And then when you stop, you say, okay, I made it. Um, it's that primal, the the um, desire to for sheer survival. Uh, some people eat more, some people, uh, go into big restriction around food. Sleep is usually drastically interrupted. Uh, it's a it's a crisis time, and so I would just support everybody that might be uh, going through this or know somebody that's going through this um, to be very very um, compassionate with yourself. If you need to sit in front of the TV and watch hours of TV, that's okay. Um, for, at the very beginning, the first two or three months after you find out that this is happening, um, uh, veering away from something really destructive, um, just be, be kind and gentle and seek out people that can um, hear you and, and hear your fear, hear your pain, and not judge you around it. One, one resource, sorry, I just wanted to say on what you're saying, Wendy, one resource I think is so helpful is your book, you know, Letters to a Sex Addict. Thank um, you. I think just she did, you did a brilliant job of normalizing the experience, the, the healing grief, the journey of grief from betrayal. So that's an excellent resource. So, I want to, sorry, I want to jump in. Going back to the thing of safety, mm -hmm. okay, just because we have listeners, is that we are a group of therapists. And so when we say the word safety, we mean many things. We do mean physical safety. We mean sexual safety, and we also mean emotional safety. So there is the idea of keeping myself safe, physically, sexually, and emotionally. And, and, we're and spiritually about, sometimes too. And spiritually, thank you. Absolutely, spiritually. So I just want to expand on that definition because some people will hear safety and automatically think violence. And certainly we are including that, but that is not exclusive. So Tim, you use the word... The, sorry to cut you off. The safety seeking earlier. And I yes. think that's a big conversation in this. So I'm, yes. cur I'm curious if you guys are okay going there. Yeah. What, what were you, you talking about? Means, yeah. What does safety yeah. seeking mean? Yeah. Maybe. I, here's, what I, here's where I was going. So we're, when, when, when somebody first gets this information, best advi first advice we have is avoid the people who are, who are shooting on you, telling you, you should do this and you should do that and you should do this. Avoid that. We just talked about all of the, 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 the experiences that come up that are gonna destabilize people, that are gonna spin in their head, that are gonna sort of impact their ability to function. So what is your advice? And maybe this, this fits in with that, dovetails with the uh, safety seeking thing. What is your best advice that you give to, to partners who are walking in your office, who are in the middle of this destabilized state of just having found out that their partner has significantly betrayed them mm -hmm. and they're having a hard time functioning. What, what do you tell them to do? So safety and stabilization. Here we are with the APSATS model. <laughs> so for those who are out there, APSATS is the Association of Partner Sex Addict Trauma Specialists who train um, coaches and clinicians to work with traumatized partners. It's also a safe haven for partners to get good information. First step, safety stabilization. So I would make suggestions and offer ideas, which would include, and not limited to, you know, meditation. Now for some folks, 
quieting down helps, but for other folks, quieting down doesn't work. So I'm with you, Wendy, of either slowing it down or revving it up. Get the loud music, get the rock and roll, sing out loud in the car hard or go for a run. Um, you know, those are the rev it up people or the you rev just it said down. rock and roll. Rock and roll, <laughs> hard rock, whatever you need to do, but blast it. Or slowing it down, which is more the quiet, soothing um, piece of bubble bath, hot shower, going for a walk in nature, meditation, cup of tea, that kind of a thing. So grounding, um, I would also say, which one of you already said was the connection with safe people. And so not anyone who's going to tell you what you should do. And please, please think long-term, short-term gains and losses. If I tell Joan, you know, in the long run, will Joan be supportive to me no matter what I do in this situation? Joan might be right there, but in the long term, she may not accept that I want to go or that I want to stay. So who to tell, what to tell, how to tell is something we kind of run through with people. So those are just two initials. Of course, I could go on for an hour, but what about you guys? What are some your go-tos? Just a couple. How about you, Wendy? You were throwing this question yes. earlier. I was like, oh, I can keep talking. I can, I can go no, on no, hours about this. That's fine. So, so I have a whole list that I have created and it keeps growing. Um, and it's, it's entitled options, options for, for partners. And um, it's all somatic based. So none of it is cognitive. Mm -hmm. It's about uh, taking essential oils and, and smelling essential oils. It's about... Um, there's this technique of, of uh, combining two senses at one time. So you're looking at the sky and you're clapping your hands. So you're hearing something. Um, it's basically, it's gardening. It's, so it's, it's, it's basically engaging the, 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 the body so that the mind hopefully can calm down. Um, so uh, I, I find that really, really helpful. And so I'll just have partners just go down and um, list things and, and try different things uh, to try to just calm the nervous system and somehow uh, quiet the mind even a little bit um, to get some semblance of sanity during the beginning times of this. Is that resource available for people that want it? Yes, I can definitely. If you email me at uh, wendyconquest at gmail.com, I can get that to you. How about Dan, how about you, Dan? Words of wisdom, amazing advice that you walk <laughs> walk into your office dispensing. <clears throat> dispensing. I'm, I'm an advice dispenser. Use <laughs> a dispenser. You can like order in. Like out. a, a Pez like dispenser. You machine. just get a little uh, just a little nugget. Treat. A little nugget of goodness. You know, you guys said some amazing things. I, I think I never know. So su social support is so helpful to, to not be alone in this. Um, I can't really predict who's going to be safe sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's your 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 family is safe. Sometimes they're not. Um, I think finding a, a therapist or a coach that's specialized in, in that understands betrayal trauma, if you can get into a support group of some kind, there are some some really good ones. There's some ones that, um, you know, so, <laughs> depends on your community. Some of them are better than others in different areas. So I think, but having, having a safe group of other partners that, that get it, 
that they're not going to judge you. They're going to support you. They're going to give things that work for them. And, and then, um, you know, really be there to, to just give you the space you need. I think those are the things I try to get link my partners because sometimes, you know, I've had people that either they tried telling a bunch of people mm -hmm. and that didn't go well, or they said, I just can't tell anybody. Nobody can know about this. So they've come into my office just mm -hmm. completely, completely isolated. So having some safe people around, I think is really, really vital. When I did partners groups, I, I would um, survey them afterwards and what uh, came to the top as one of the primary things that helped them through their uh, experience with this was having one person that they could go to who really understood and uh, that they could go to day or night and they would be there for them. And yeah. sometimes it was another person in the group. Sometimes it was a relative. Um, sometimes it was a coach. Um, but but that one person was crucial. One of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced uh, in another podcast, we talked about disclosure, a therapeutic disclosure process. Um, and I've had partners come in with their own support person. Um, kind of just sitting outside, not part, take, taking part in the disclosure session itself, but they'll come either drive their, their, the partner to the disclosure, or they'll sit outside, they'll, or they'll plan a weekend with them, or they'll come over and just sit for a few hours. You know, they just do these really beautiful gestures of support for these uh, partners that are going through a disclosure. To and me, that's one of the most amazing things I've seen in, in my practice. I, I love that you brought that up. It reminds me, we had, um, Jeannie was running a partner group and one of the partners was going through disclosure. And after disclosure, I think the disclosure was on a Friday and the partner group went away together for a little retreat to support this person who had just gone through disclosure. So that, you know, that you're absolutely right that that connection is so healing. Um, you know, rarely what we say is gonna be healing. Rarely what we do is gonna be healing, but that connection and that relationship with another person uh, is healing. I always hear Brene Brown at the end of her empathy video. And she says, you know, that phrase of, wow, I, I don't even know what to say right now, but I'm so glad you told me. And then giving that person a hug that, you know, that, that relationship is, is just so powerful and healing. And yeah, if you're, if you're out there and you're a partner and you're experiencing this stuff, if there's someone you can find and connect with, who can be that healing relationship with you, that's, that's so so helpful. And if, and if you don't have it, find a therapist who can, can guide you and help you to get yourself grounded. And most of the time people find those people through their healing journey. And just for our audience disclosure, if this is the first uh, podcast that you've listened to um, disclosure, is, we are referring to when the person who has been unfaithful uh, does a full, um, usually this is a sex addict, um, does a, a, a full inventory of all their be, uh, behaviors that they have done to, um, to, to uh, violate the primary relationship. And they have worked with their own therapist in creating this. And then um, the partner has created a list of questions that, that uh, they specifically want to ask. And then um, together, uh, they with with two therapists present, um, uh, the the I'm going to call it the addict then um, gives their entire history. Uh, and uh, I, I uh, now I've done hundreds of disclosures, 
Um, I think I've had two where the partner said, I knew everything, you know, I didn't need to do this. Um, but but um, most of the time, something gets revealed. And so the partners need a ton of support um, as that preparation is happening and the actual day comes when uh, they're gonna hear everything. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what the path out is. I mean, if somebody's experiencing betrayal trauma, here's what we do when they first walk through the door. But what does their healing journey and what 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 can they expect as they're moving forward? And and also we were talking earlier about our the name of our podcast, conversations on sex, addiction, and relationships, and how would betrayal trauma relate to all three of those? And so the other piece of that question for me is, and what does the way out, the healing journey for the relationship look like? So Tim, with your question, what I find a lot is the very first thing when when infidelity is found out, the very first go-to uh, that usually the partner uh, starts seeking out is couples therapy. Mm -hmm. And so I can't tell you how many clients I've had who have done years of different types of couples therapy and felt like they got nowhere, um, felt that they had wasted their time and money. Um, they, they're very frustrated. And, and this is not a bash to, to couples therapists. There are some amazing couples therapists with amazing ways of working. However, with infidelity, the very first thing is, okay, was this, a, was this just a one-off or is this addiction? Has this happened multiple times in multiple ways? Those are two pretty different scenarios. And can I even add, I have a lot of clients that have started with couples therapy, but you've had the person that has been unfaithful that's been lying the whole time. So right. there's been some issue in the relationship. They feel something's off, you know, both of there's something not quite right, but now they're in couples therapy, but all the whole picture is not even being talked about. Mm -hmm. So I've seen that happen a number of times too. There's also this balance, which is sort of recovery stuff, which is at the same time, you can't exclusively just focus on your individual path because the relationship suffers that way. And so oftentimes it's like, yes, you've got to get into your individual work. You got to do some couples work, but you're absolutely right. It's not traditional couples therapy. It's much more like crisis oriented. How does the couple manage this big stinky elephant in the middle of their relationship couples work? And I, and I also want to say for a lot of couples, when this is found out, the very first thing that can happen is that their um, sexual interaction increases. And um, a lot of times that's very destructive, um, actually for both people. This, this seems to be sort of a natural go-to as well. If we, if we connect through sex, then maybe it's all going to be okay. Or um, maybe you're getting what you wanted. Um, and um, I in 21 years, I've never seen that work, actually. Uh, it, it can be a temporary, uh, seemingly a temporary fix, but yeah. it's it's not addressing any of the issues that created the dynamic in the first place. I think sometimes it's the, the increased sexual activity is a way to feel connected. I agree. It's a way to feel connected with vulnerability, especially if the couple is trying to work it out. And, and, and I'm talking more of infidelity rather than sex addiction that's that reconnection. So I want to be careful that couples is never a good idea because for some folks it is when the truth is really in the room, when the truth is really in the room. And I'm thinking the distinction between the infidelity piece also, 
because in the sex addiction land, we really want people to do more individual work to have a better understanding of sex addiction and all those things. But for infidelity to start off with, if it's truth in the room, to, that would make sense with the right couples therapist who's used to working with infidelity. Jeannie, Jeannie you- I, I want to do, do a show on emotional intimacy and sexual intimacy and the difference between those. Ooh, fun. Yeah. So I'm just going to, I'm going to put that out there to everybody. Yeah. Right. So, because I believe that if there's not emotional intimacy, there shouldn't be sexual intimacy. That that's my own bias. That would definitely be a bias because there's going to be a whole lot of people out there who say sex is fun. And if we're all mutually consenting, let's have fun. I hear you, (laughs) but there's different pieces, right? I I wanted to back up for a second though, just for, have we done, have we defined infidelity versus sex addiction well enough hey that'd be a really great idea can you so Go when you're it, saying, <laughs> well i'll say what i when i see because i think we use those those terms um the problem is there's overlap right so when i think of infidelity a lot of times um we talk about cheating so that so someone has uh and you define that really well Jeannie. we talked about that earlier i think sex the difference with sex addiction is there's an ongoing pattern typically from a young age you know adolescence, sometimes earlier, that's been a pattern across relationships, across someone's lifespan, typically. There's been a longer history, um, whereas infidelity may be a, a one-time thing, a, a couple-time thing. It's, it's more limited. That's the way I tend to see it. Do you guys have different definitions? I just want to make sure people understand. I would say it doesn't have a compulsive feel to it, and right. it's not obsessive. And, and there's a difference of, you know, being something new. So it takes a lot of your thought, but the compulsive piece, and I've tried to stop and I can't, the, you know, some of the hallmarks of addiction aren't present in the infidelity. And if someone's not sure, I I would say, reach out to a specialist and ask. Yeah, there are also, um, so for those of you who are listening, uh, the four of us are all certified sex addiction therapists. And so we have access to different uh, anonymous assessments that will determine whether or not sex addiction is actually present. And so um, those, I don't know about you guys, but um, those assessments I've always found to be extremely helpful and accurate. Yep. So getting back to the journey, what I hear us saying is partners do their have to do their own healing work on trauma and have to figure out how to stabilize themselves, how to start putting their life back together and start to figure out what their boundaries look like. There's an importance of communication in the relationship around what does my healing journey look like? What does your recovery journey look like? And being able to have that conversation about those two processes and how they interact with each other. I want to be careful of the word of have to, because I don't know if you noticed, Tim, but you said partners have to. I was shooting on people. You were. So, so I just want to remind, you know, it's, it's encouraged. Here's an option. I invite you to, because everyone's going to do it their own, their own way. But what I heard you say, and if I've got it wrong, you let me know was having partners seek the help for the trauma reaction will help partners uh, return to a level of functioning that they want to return to. Yeah. decreasing the trauma reactions and improving their self self stability in the world. Did I get you? Yeah. And the other thing I was saying is that on the couple side for the relationship, 
figuring out how to communicate about the partner's healing process and the addict's recovery process and how that's impacting everybody so that the addict can learn to be transparent as they're doing their recovery work imperfectly. The partner can learn to share their, their pain, their fear, their trauma reactions as they're coming up and, and be uh, present with that healing process. Um, and through that process, the, the trust and the, uh, the healthy intimacy within the relationship is slowly, not overnight, but slowly healed and rebuilt. Does that match your guys' sort of perspective on yeah, I, I guess I would add, so I, I, I created a developmental model for the relationship and oh, um, there, there's, awesome. there's, there, there's four stages. The first stage is discovery when both the addict and the partner are just whirling in their own uh, disbelief of what's happened. The second stage is where the, the addict truly gets the partner's pain. And a lot of times the addicts will say, oh no, I understand, I understand. But it's not until she says, oh, yes, he gets it. I feel it. He gets it. The third stage is where the two come together and grieve what they both have lost. So in the stage, uh, there's not sort of the, the labels of addict partner kind of go away. They, they do go away for the couple. And the addiction becomes this third piece, this nasty entity that has stolen from both of them. And then the fourth stage, rarely see this, but the, and I get chills when I, when I talk about it. The fourth stage is where something organic happens in now the relationship. So it could be they both spontaneously say, hey, let's do this new business together. Or, hey, let's build a home, a new house together. Um, hey, let's move out of the country. I, you know, I've always wanted to live in Spain. And they, and they both say, yes, that, that's what we wanna do. But it's this organic growth and opening and creative piece that uh, that they both engage in yeah nice so i love this conversation about betrayal trauma and all the what it is the impact of it the healing journey before we totally wrap up today what are your last thoughts or what what's the the final piece that you either want to sort of reflect on or you want to share and make sure that that, that people hear dan you had something about I have a twofer actually. You have a twofer. Hey, I've got two. Twofer. Ah. I'm gonna make this is this is a pitch I make to to the 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 betraying party. So I know we're talking about betrayal trauma, but I would say for anyone out there that's that's uh, created the infidelity, that's been the, the the betrayer. You can do so much to help your partner heal. So yes, your partner has their own healing journey as a result of the trauma to do. Um, and we kind of talked about that. So first of all, doing recovery work, staying sober, but also the, the other things of really, really like Wendy was saying, really getting your partner's pain is so critical because if you're minimizing it, defending against it, you know, saying, when are we going to, you're going to say this again, when are we going to get over this? Those kinds of things don't help. Um, so, so really trying to, to get it, um, not continuing to do emotional abuse 
patterns or gaslighting or defending or lying, those things are critical. So that's one thing I would say for, for anyone out there that that's such a huge part of how you can help your partner heal. I would also say, and on a kind of bigger macro level, I think we as a society have a lot more work to do. Um, you see this happen when, let's say, politicians uh, have this public de disgracing of, you know, they, they have an infidelity and it gets discovered. You'll always see comments about like, well, if I was married to that, you know, to their wife, I would cheat too. You'll almost always see that stuff and they'll start talking, they'll start uh, picking on the, the, the spouse of, of the, the person who's, who's done the infidelity. And I just think infidelity or sex addiction is not the partner's problem. They didn't do it. They didn't cause it. There's nothing they could have done to change it. So, you know, the, the, that's, I, it's the, the result of what an action, action or set of actions that this, the, the, the betraying party did. So we need, as a society, need to stop blaming the victim. We need to really put mm -hmm. responsibility where it is. Um, and I just think we have a lot more work to do there. So that's my twofer. And I would just add on to that, stop blaming them for the other person's behavior and also stop blame, blaming them if they choose to stay. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the one thing I want to say, and Dan, thank you, because I'm just over here going, yay, is reminder that treatment healing for betrayed partner is a very different treatment path than addiction. These are extremely different processes and they go different speeds at different times of the therapy. So two different paths, but it's interesting and it's hard because you've got a coupleship where the one is doing in addiction, at least one is doing an addiction healing and the other one's doing a trauma healing and they're different techniques, they're different processes and they're different speeds. I think for infidelity, it's a bit different. Um, there's a little more factors in there, but they heal together if it's a one-off kind of experience. And I don't want to minimize these one-offs because the pain is very real on it, um, but it is a different process of, heat, of treatment. And then also the understanding and recognition that this topic, betrayal trauma, is so multifaceted. We can go on and have a whole day conversation about this because there's different pieces to it. So I feel like we touched on all these different little pieces and there's so much more in there that I wouldn't want someone to think that, oh, I've, I've, I've done a betrayal trauma training now. Oh, I, I, saw, I listened to this podcast and I'm good. Oh, no, you're not. There's lots more to it. So keep learning if this is an interest of yours. That's what I want to say. Great. And I, I would say um, to... Um, to anybody listening to this, if you're the partner, um, don't be surprised if you're feeling a lot of shame. So we know that the addicts feel shame or, or anybody that has um, done, uh, done any kind of cheating or, or betrayal, you, on some level, they're going to feel shame or ashamed. And so um, what gets missed a lot of times is the partner also experiences their own shame. And so I would say, be kind to yourself, uh, be, be, go easy. Uh, the recovery process of this takes much, much longer than anybody wants it to or expects it to. Um, the shortest that I see, have seen a partner get out of the PTSD phase is probably seven months after discovery. That's the shortest it can last much longer. So, um, and, and I, I want to take this opportunity to just um, thank my um, co-podcasters here. Um, 
I just uh, th this was uh, this was a, a a brainstorm that we had, and it has come into fruition. I look forward to every time that we meet virtually, and I just respect and love you all. Oh, I got you right back at you. I guess the one piece that I would throw out as my final my final thought, which is really a, a suggestion to partners out there is be active in finding what works for you. And it may not be what works for everyone else. You know, if you have a, a support group that, that works for you, great. And if a support group for whatever reason doesn't work for you, find something else. If you have a church group that works for you, great. But if your church group is blaming of you, do something different. If you like Tai Chi, do that. If you like to run, do that. But be active in sort of figuring out what works for you. There's lots of resources that you can search for. And, it, and, and like we were talking about earlier, if it works for you to calm down or if it works for you to rev up, but don't judge yourself on what you do and, and don't be limited to only the suggestions that we as therapists might offer you. Be active in finding what works for you. I just want to thank everybody out there for joining us for this conversation today. Um, like Wendy said, you know, we, we so enjoy being a, having these conversations and sharing this information with other people out there. Please rate us on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you're listening to us. Share us on social media and uh, join us again for another conversation. Okay, stop. That's, That's going to be a great blooper right That's there. That's great. That's perfect. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> okay, it's, it's sex, addiction, and relationships. Relationship. Okay. <laughs> Everything is going to be recorded. And I should say only smart things. Want to keep it rolling just in case something crazy comes out of my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> I have my control issues. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jeannie. No, I'm done. <laughs>